Hello and welcome to Pep Talks. I'm Frank Laughlin, Strategic Account Manager for Kerber Business Area Pharma. And I'm Elizabeth Doyle, HR Business Partner for Kerber Business Area Pharma. Our goal for Pep Talks is to have conversations on current topics impacting pharmaceutical manufacturing. And to get to know the people who are the experts in the industry. So sit back, relax, or go for a walk with some pep in your step. Welcome to Pep Talks. On today's episode of Pep Talks, we have Daniel Matlas. Dan is founder and president of Exindia, an analyst firm providing trusted advice to life science executives on business, technology, and regulatory issues. Dan has three decades of industry experience spanning the life science value network. He is an active contributor to FDA's Case for Quality Initiative, is a member of FDA's Advisory Council on Modeling, Simulation, and In-Silico Clinical Trials. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's my pleasure to be here today. We are very excited to chat with you today about debunking myths in the pharmaceutical industry. Dan, with your extensive resume and proven expertise in this area, you've probably seen and heard quite a few unique interpretations as it pertains to FDA regulations. Absolutely. Over 30 years, you hear a lot of um, interesting approaches to complying with the regulatory requirements. Interesting to say the least, I'm sure. (laughs) So let's just start with the most common possible misconception. Do regulators really require my documents to be signed in one color? Absolutely not. (laughs) This is a myth that has been around for as long as I can remember. And I have uh, engaged with many industry executives around whether or not I should use black ink or blue ink per their regulatory requirements. And in fact, the regulation doesn't specify a color. It says that it, sh- you know, that that the writing should be clear, that it should be legible, and that it should be written in indelible ink. The color actually came out of the early days of copy machines, where some copy, where most copy machines wouldn't pick up the blue color. And companies wanted to have a true record, what the agency calls a true record, which included all of the information. And those organizations chose black ink. Some companies wanted to be able to discern between the original record and the copy. And those companies chose blue ink. Now, those were written into standard operating procedures. So as far as a particular company is concerned, if their SOP states that you can only use blue ink, then that's what you have to do because that's your company's interpretation of the regulation and how you're going to comply. And the same thing if your company says you have to do it in black ink or if somebody chose green ink. As long as it's indelible, you're meeting the regulatory requirement. Where we get into trouble is where there's that that line that's crossed and people assume that because their SOP states that it needs to be blue, that that's the regulatory requirement. So I think that's a very important distinction as it relates to any regulatory requirement. Let's look at the true requirement versus our own interpretation that was written into policies and procedures. Dan, there's always questions about what do I present to the FDA? Do I present the EBR printout or do I present the electronic version? So what are the myths and things out there that you've seen that the FDA requires? 
And that's an excellent question. And I think it's important to degloss this issue into a couple of important points. Number one, can you present a paper record to the agency? And the answer is yes, you can, as long as it includes all of the appropriate information that is required for you to comply. The issue is that many companies take that may present a paper record as a must present a paper record. And we've actually had discussions specifically with FDA on this topic. And in fact, the agency would prefer that you have an electronic record because it actually shows the entire execution of that batch. If you design your EBRs and your processes using MES to capture all the information that is needed from your process standpoint, then you will have a complete record in the electronic system. And therefore, it provides you with a much better record. So the simple answer is no, you don't have to provide paper. The FDA doesn't require you to provide a paper record. And in fact, the preference would be if you're using an electronic system that you keep that information in an electronic format. The second part of your question, Frank, is around what do you show an auditor? And what's important to understand is what is an auditor entitled to see? And based on that information, then you could create a report of the batch record that is intended for viewing by regulatory agencies. That includes all of the information that an auditor is statutorily uh, entitled to see, but doesn't include the informational purposes only or the material that you use or the data that you use in order to support your business. And that is one area where we recommend that companies create something specifically for the auditor, a record specifically for auditors is in this report that you would show from your EBR. What's interesting is a lot of times auditors want to take information back to the hotel with them. And in some cases, these EBR printouts could be a thousand pages, depending on how they design their MBR. And this becomes an issue where they go, okay, we, where a company would say, does an auditor want to see a thousand pages? And of course they don't. You know, that's the, that's the reality of it. The other thing that has come up recently too is showing the auditor the electronic record and what can they say, what can they see? Because during an audit, it used to be, one page, hand it to the auditor, they scan, they look, they do whatever they do. But now you're showing them, you know, essentially what looks like maybe a database or, a, you know, that type of thing. And are they allowed to pick and choose what they want to see when they're actually saying, hey, listen, I want to see batch one, two, three, four. But there's batch one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, where before you would only give them batch one, two, three, four, page one. You know what I mean? So whoever was the quality compliance person controlling the audit would be controlling what the auditor asked for and saw, you know, in that particular case, where electronically, 
Now we're flipping up the screen and we're seeing everything. So how does that how does that work with the from a myth debunk standpoint? Yeah. So one thing that's important to understand is from a statutory standpoint, the FDA has the authority to request that a company provide any and all information that they're entitled to see in either a paper or electronic format. That's just what FDEJA's Title VII, Section 706 says. It's the law. It's required. What's important is how do you manage that inspection? Ultimately, what you want to do is you want to create trust between you and the auditor rather than having that be an adversarial interaction it needs to be a trust building interaction so having questions going back and forth between the quality individual leading the audit and the auditor is very important so what do you want to see i want to see your batch record for a specific batch all right so we show them that information now, that doesn't mean that you need to open up your entire database and let the auditor drive, if you will, across the system. They're not entitled to do that. They're not entitled to ask you to sit down and navigate your system because they don't understand it. They don't know how. They don't have the appropriate background education and training in your system. But if you're working with them and you are able to show them through a report of that particular batch, how things worked out, that actually builds the trust. And as you build trust, then what happens is the auditors, what we, what, what we have found is the audits actually get shorter rather than longer. In the old days, when it took you a day and a half to get that paper batch record from the records vault, the auditor had a day and a half to now do something else. If you're able to provide that information quickly, and you build that trust, then typically those audits tend to get shorter. That's great information. Thank you. Welcome to the digital age is really what it comes down to. And I think everybody's navigating through it. Yep. But that brings us to the next question, which from a digital perspective, does the FDA require validation of every feature in every system? Again, th this is something I've dealt with personally back in my days working in industry. I mean, in the early days of validation, the focus was on creating the appropriate level of documentation to satisfy an auditor, right? So it really, when, when somebody came to me and I, I was responsible for computer system validation at, at an industry company, somebody would come to me and say, Dan, what documents do I need to create in order to validate the system? And I would give them a spreadsheet with uh, check marks on what documents they would need to create. Today, what we need to do is look at what is the risk associated with a particular feature or function as it relates to the patient risk, to the quality system risk, and to the business risk. And the FDA only cares about patient risk and quality system risk. Business risk is, is on you. You should still take it into consideration. But when it comes to what type of documentation do I then need to create, we need to use critical thinking and understand and, and use a true risk-based approach where we score each feature and function. And depending on that level of risk, 
we do a commensurate level of testing. One misnomer is that if a system has a single high risk feature and function, then the whole system is high risk. And as a result, many companies would spend inordinate amounts of time, effort, and money validating an entire ERP, for example, because there were a subset of features that were impact that could impact patient directly or impact the quality system. What the current thinking is from the agency, and the agency has gone on the record actually explaining this, and, and they're working on a new guidance document, transitioning from computer system validation, the guidance that's 22 years old, to a new guidance around computer software assurance that actually specifies and states that what we need to do is validate for intended use and risk of a particular feature and function and leveraging a lot of the work that our suppliers have done to properly test the -the out-of-the-box functionality. Yeah, I was going to ask is, you know, leveraging FAT or something along those lines from a vendor this is where we're starting to look at or the, the FDA starting to say you can start leveraging instead of having to redo. Now, in biopharmaceuticals, one of our big things is trust but verify. Yep. You know, that's what we like to say. So even though we see it again with inside the company, it, you know, a lot of CSV or quality are going to say, well, it's on me. You know, it's my, you know, I've got to make sure that this is done right. And if it's not done right, I'm going to get fired you know, that type of thing. So what I'm hearing is risk and logic. Risk and logic are critical. And I'll give you a a specific example. In my early days of of validation, when I validated my very first computer system on the shop floor uh, 27 years ago, I wrote validation protocol and the requirements for the computer said that it had to work on 110 volts. This is going to be good. (laughs) So I go to my quality representative and Hank actually tells me, well, if it's a requirement, then you need documented evidence that you get 110 volts out of the outlet. So Dan, you're an electrical engineer. You probably have your trusty voltmeter. You have to go and measure that there's 110 volts that come out of that outlet because that's a requirement. And if you're not testing every requirement, then we have exposure from a regulatory standpoint. And what we actually did is Hank and I sat down and and I explained by law in the United States, the electric company has to provide 110 volts RMS plus minus 15%. So there is already a regulatory requirement on the power company to provide 110 volts. In addition to that, the power supply on my computer goes 80 to 240 volts self-sensing. So even if that electric company was to provide 50 plus minus 50%, my system would be able to handle it. And in addition to that, we were going to put a UPS in front of it. So there's always going to be 110 volts. So I explained to Hank, what if instead of testing 110 volts coming out of the wall, we put a couple of sentences explaining that in the validation protocol and therefore avoid the need for every other system that came after that at our company 
having to be tested to make sure that there's 110 volts coming out of the wall. And that's where using that common sense, that's where using logic and understanding what is the regulatory requirement that the FDA care that I have 110 volts coming out of the system. No, they care what we should care about and what the FDA is focusing on is what's the impact on the patient, not the impact on the electrical network. Now, imagine if you hadn't used that logic, which would be, and you've seen this happen, where a new employee comes in and next to every computer, there's a voltmeter because wherever you move that computer, you've got to test that outlet. And the new guy looks and goes, why is there a voltmeter? The next guy goes, I don't know. That's the way we've always done it. Because if you didn't use that logic, that's exactly what would have happened. There'd be voltmeters everywhere. (laughs) And it goes back, if we want to circle back to the earlier question from, from Elizabeth about blue ink or black ink, right? Why blue ink? Why do we, in my company, we only have blue pens. Right. Well, again, that was written into an SOP or that became common law because that's the way we've always done it. And it's the little C and CGMPs. And once you do it one way, it is difficult to change that, what we call regulatory inertia within the organization. That's the way we've always done it. Therefore, we're going to keep doing it that way. But the value proposition now is how do we push back? And actually, Dr. Jeff Shuren, who's the director of CDRH, which is the branch of the agency that originally wrote that guidance on computer system validation that we all follow regardless of what we make, actually said that the challenge is that very often companies focus on creating paperwork that will satisfy the regulator. Instead, what we should focus on is ensuring that the documentation that we create actually has value to our business. And the benign side effect of running or designing and executing good processes is that you have met the regulatory requirements, but not the other way around. Let's not focus on what is the auditor going to want. Let's focus on what do we need as a business in order to manufacture the highest quality products that we can that will improve our patient's outcome with regulatory compliance being that baseline. So following up on that, have we made this relationship far more complicated than it needs to be? Have have we as organizations made the FDA an enemy instead of a friend? I think there's history to that. There have, you know, in the past, the relationship between regulator and organizations has been an adversarial one. And regulators recognize this, the FDA in particular recognizes this, and industry recognizes it. The the FDA is changing and is working with industry on a number of transformational initiatives like the case for quality, like quality metrics, like remote inspections, in order to facilitate the interaction between the agency and industry. I think, unfortunately, industry has been slower to react than regulators. And there's still a level of mistrust within many organizations, especially 
quality organizations, mid-management within quality organizations that want to keep the status quo because that, to Frank's point earlier, that is what's comfortable. That's what they've known for many years. So the important piece, I think, is understanding what's the value proposition, what do we need to provide the regulators, and then providing the appropriate level of, of documentation that's needed. The interesting part is everybody's trying to do the same thing. We're trying to make the best medication for people because we change their lives. You know, the, what we put into people's change their lives. The FDA is trying to make sure that we're making the best and we pride ourselves in making mm -hmm. the best. The pharmaceutical companies and the biological companies really do do that. Now, there are cases out there, you know, we've seen in past history where here's the reason the FDA is around based on companies just trying to make an extra buck. But I think by and large today, everybody's on the same team in the grand scheme of things. Absolutely. I think the challenge is that as an industry, we are frozen in time. Once the, the submission is made to the FDA for an NDA or a BLA, part of that submission is the CMC section, right? Which states, this is how I'm going to manufacture the product. Once that is approved, many companies freeze their entire facility. And because their concern is if we make changes to our manufacturing process, we need to go back to the FDA or to the regulator and ask for permission. And what if the answer is no? Or what if that request triggers an inspection? Mm -hmm. So instead, we freeze those facilities in time for 12 to 15 years. And imagine what's the technology that existed 15 years ago. You're still running, trying to make the highest quality product that you can. What is changing that is regulators around the world have recognized it. And through ICH, Q12, they're looking to change that dynamic. So Q12 provides the opportunity to manage the product across its life cycle and provides a risk-based approach that enables organizations to identify which changes are critical to quality and need to be referenced to the regulatory body for review and or approval and which changes simply improve the process, the manufacturing process and don't have a direct impact on those quality, critical to quality attributes and the improvements can be made without notifying the regulators at all. Yeah, it could be like changing a CIP cycle where we want to get rid of X and put more water in. But as long as you test and show that any protonaceous material has been, you know, everything's gone and the pipes are clean, life is good. Correct. Or it may be implementing an MES as, as a specific example, right? Does implementing the MES increase the risk of having the right paper records? No, in fact, it decreases the risk because I'm eliminating all those opportunities for error that we as humans input into the system. When we transpose a number and we forget to enter certain information, when we move the period 
when we're trying to enter a decimal. So in fact, an MES can reduce, does reduce the risk associated with documentation. And as long, again, as we are properly testing and validating those critical to quality attributes, those high risk features and functions, then we don't need to go back to the regulator to say we've implemented a technology that reduces risk. We can just go ahead and do that. Is paper still the gold standard for batch records? The way I like to explain it to executives is you could run your ledger on paper. You literally can. Companies have done it for hundreds of years. You have notebooks, ledger notebooks, and you know, my credits, my debits, what kind of how many checks, how many of them do that today? Just because you can do it on paper, it doesn't mean you should do it on paper. And what you need to look at is the flip side. If I were to run my ledger on paper instead of ERP, how much money would I lose? Mm. Literally, I would lose money because somebody made a mistake and move a period over. And all of a sudden, instead of paying $10,000, I paid $100,000. But it's on paper, so I would never know that. I'm going to have to come back and do an audit. So I have my quality or my controller come in and do an audit. And a year later, I find out that I overpaid by $90,000. In a way, we're doing the same thing to our manufacturing processes by saying, yes, we can run them on paper and paper is the gold standard and it's been around since papyrus and the Egyptians, right? But just because we've been doing it for a long time, it doesn't mean we should be doing it. We don't do financial records on papyrus anymore. We don't use abacus anymore. And Elizabeth and I don't go to work in a horse and buggy anymore. That's right. (laughs) Speak for yourself, Frank. Okay, that's true. (laughs) But the question, and and that begs the question, Frank, and it's an excellent question. Why do we still do batch records on paper? So does the FDA truly frown upon the use of electronic batch records? The answer is absolutely not. In fact, the agency is encouraging industry to modernize and digitally transform and take advantage of the latest technology available to support the manufacture of the highest quality products with the least amount of regulatory oversight. So electronic batch records actually reduce the risk associated with the process. The ability to implement technology that error proofs lowers risk and electronic batch records are nothing but that documented evidence that is created automatically from your system to ensure that you have manufactured that product in accordance with your policies and your procedures so In our conversations with FDA, they have made it clear that the implementation of MES and the use of electronic batch records actually reduces the risk from manual batch record documentation. So the question is, from an FDA perspective, are they stuck in the old, is 
this is the way we've always done it, or are they going digital from a paper, you know, from a paper perspective, because this is how they've always done inspections, where the industry is going digital faster than the FDA. The agency is actually implementing their data modernization action plan, which will enable it to bring data across multiple systems within the agency and visualize that information and that data in a way that will move them from the current reactive approach to a more proactive and predictive. In fact, in next year's budget, the agency has allocated over $80 million to their digital transformation initiative. So as an industry, we need to make sure that we keep up with the digital transformation modernization from the regulators so that we can provide them the data and the information that they will require in an electronic format because static documents or electronic paper as the FDA calls PDF will not be sufficient. Now to go back to Elizabeth's point earlier, the us and them mentality, what's kind of interesting when you think about it is that the companies were light years ahead of the FDA from a digital future standpoint. And the compliance folks that were managing those inspections were already in the digital age, but then had to regress back to either paper or really question, what do we show the auditor? Because they hadn't caught up to where these companies are today because they are moving forward. They are doing it better, faster, cleaner with better technology. So this is where it kind of, I think everybody's starting to catch up at this point in time. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think what we are seeing more and more is collaboration between the regulators and the industry in a positive way to identify what are the standards, what are the processes, what is the data that both groups actually need to ultimately enable the delivery of the highest quality products that improve patient outcome. Because the goal is the same. The agencies, the regulatory agencies want to ensure that we provide the patients the highest quality products and that they're available as quickly as possible. Isn't that what industry wants as well? So the value proposition is we need to align those goals and leverage the most reliable technology available today and digitally transform our organizations because this digital transformation is is a journey. It's not a project. There's always going to be better technology coming down the pike. And what we need to do as an ecosystem is ensure that we leverage that technology and we work collaboratively to understand what is the data that the regulators need so that we can provide that and facilitate the regulatory process. The interesting thing is the old adage, trust but verify is actually on both sides. So we do it in the industry and really the FDA, they trust us, but they're gonna verify what we're telling. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what, you know, that's the regulatory role. You know, I feel like we could go on talking about this for hours, but unfortunately, but unfortunately that is all the time we have for today. Dan, thank you for this wealth of knowledge, insight, and pure conversation today. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. We'll see you next time on Pep Talks. 